0: we're in Romans 5, and we're still in this section that's all about the great benefits of salvation. And if you think that it's taking us a while to get through this section, then you should rejoice. You should be happy, because it just goes to show how many amazing benefits of salvation there really are, and they are yours in Christ. If I start getting a voice, I'm going to start preaching, so y'all just hold on, but... We've seen so far that by being justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Not only that, we have access to God. And we saw last week that we have a reason to rejoice in every circumstance. And this morning, we're going to read and find out another great benefit, arguably the best of all, that we are loved by God. You see, people in our world today, if they're going to talk about God and it's not something negative, they're going to say something about God's love. They seem to know only one Bible verse, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But the problem is they have no idea what they're talking about. They're like Job, when Job said to the Lord, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. People in our world, when they say God is love, they typically use it as a justification for sin, right? They know that they're living in sin. They know that their hearts are not right with God. They know they're doing something that is not in line with the Bible. But they say, but God is love. Therefore, it's okay for me to do what I'm doing. But they don't comprehend the love of God. They don't treasure the love of God above all else. They, they cannot grasp its depths. They haven't beheld its heights. They know nothing of its cost. They can't even begin to articulate the magnitude of God's love. As the great hymn says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star." And it reaches to the lowest hell. That is the magnitude of the love of God for His people. And yet, even though this love is so wonderful and rich and full and pervasive and real, how often do we, even as Christians, doubt this love and struggle to believe that God could actually love us? I mean, when we see our shortcomings in life, when we see how we continue to struggle to overcome sin in our lives, when when we continue to fall short of who God calls us to be and do the things that we know we should do and we want to do, but we can't seem to actually do those things, we wonder to ourselves, how could God love me? And I don't think there's a more common time that we ask that question than in the midst of suffering and trials. You remember last week our passage said that we have a reason to rejoice even in the midst of great suffering. Suffering that is guaranteed to happen in the Christian life. You know, people sometimes describe suffering as being kind of like a a person battling the darkness alone. And and that's not a bad description. but, But I have found that suffering is oftentimes like the blazing bright sun that blinds our eyes and keeps us from seeing anything around us. You know what that's like, right? If you've ever looked into the sun, which you're not supposed to do, but you've done it before. You look into the sun and it blinds your eyes and it keeps you from seeing anything around you. You can look around all you want to, but you cannot take anything in because your eyes have been damaged. And when we experience the difficulties of this life, and we have to endure great suffering and loss and hardships, we too are blinded. We're blinded to truth. The only truth that we know in those moments of great hardship and suffering is what we feel and experience in the moment. When all we really want is to know, right? We want to know, God, why is this happening to me? God... What did I do to deserve this? God, what are you up to? When we continue to to struggle with sin and when we're experiencing tragedy and hardships and suffering more than anything else on earth, what we really want to know is, God, do you actually love me? Do you still love me even now? And that's the question that I want us to consider this morning. You see, God wants us to be assured of His love at all times as Christians. So here's my question, church. How can we be certain of God's love in all circumstances of life? You know that you've doubted God's love, but God wants you to have an assurance of His love. So how can we be certain of His love in every circumstance of life? Well, look with me there at verse 5. This is what the Bible says. You remember Paul had said last week that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, keep in mind, this does come right at the end of that section on suffering. And and Paul is saying that, hey, this hope is not going to disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. And it's really interesting, in the Greek there, the word poured, it's written in such a way it signifies an act that was started in the past, but continues always in the present. It's a continual act. And so there's a really cool picture here in Greek. If you want to try to get the image, uh, think of an infinity pool. Anybody ever seen an infinity pool? Yeah, they're pretty cool if you've seen them. So it's a pool that's not only filled to the brim, it's constantly overflowing. But what's amazing about these pools is none of the water is ever lost. It never runs out of water. It is constantly overflowing and never runs out of water. That's the picture of God pouring His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit here in the Greek language. It says that His love floods our hearts. It fills our hearts to the brim. It overflows our hearts. And since it's a continual act, this love just keeps being poured out. It never runs out. It never ceases. It's as David said in Psalm 23 and verse 5, my cup overflows. Except in this situation, it's our hearts. Our hearts are constantly overflowing with the love of God because He is constantly pouring that love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now church, here's the thing. I want to ask you a question. What is the connection here? Think about this with me. Why would Paul feel compelled to make this point about God's love right now? What is it that is so urgent that he feels compelled to start talking about God's love right now? I think it's because there's never a time that we doubt God's love more than when we're suffering and experiencing the hardships of life, right? I mean, you know what it's like when life isn't going how we planned it, and it rarely does. When life is not going the way that we want it to go, and it rarely does. When we're blinded to everything except our own sorrow and our own misery, that sorrow wells up within us. It floods us. It consumes us. It causes us to question God's love for us. And we're tempted to believe that the sorrows of suffering drown out Everything else. That is all we feel in the moment. The only thing that is real to us in those times is the sorrow of our own suffering. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. Here's what Paul's saying to us. God's love for you is even greater than the sorrows of suffering. God's love for you is even greater than the sorrows of suffering. Now listen to me here. I want you to hear me clearly on this. That does not mean that your pain isn't real. That does not mean that your suffering is not great. That does not mean that you are experiencing unbelievable hardships in a deluge of grief. But it does mean that no matter how bad your pain is, no matter how sorrowful your suffering is, no matter how difficult the trial is, you can be assured that God's love for you is even greater than that. Because His love continually floods our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Again, thinking back to that great hymn, this is my favorite stanza, I think, ever written in a hymn. It says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That is how great God's love is for His people. That is the magnitude of His love. What a blessing to know that no matter how great our sorrow is, no no matter how bad our pain is, God's love for us is even greater than that. And so Christian, the next time you're experiencing trials and suffering and you're battling grief and it feels all-consuming and it's blinded you to everything else in life, I want you to remind yourself of this. God's love for me is even greater than this sorrow. God loves me more than this hurts me. That is a promise that we have in Christ. But we do struggle to believe that, don't we, church? When you are in those times, you struggle to believe that God actually loves you like that. And I think it comes not only when we're experiencing trials, but it also comes, that doubt, when we're battling sin in our lives, doesn't it? When we are failing to live as we ought to live and doing what we ought to do, when we bear the name Christian, but actually fail to live in accordance with that name, when we look more like the world than we do like Christ, we begin to ask ourselves again, how could God love me? How could He love someone like me? When I'm battling sin, when I'm struggling, when I'm failing constantly, how can you tell me that God loves me? And these next few verses are amazing because it's as if God says, I want to prove to you that I love you. Look at verses 6-8. through eight. The Bible says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still weak, Sinners, Christ died for us. These verses are simple enough to understand, but they are deep enough to meditate upon for an entire lifetime. Because they address some of the biggest issues we face as Christians today. For instance, something I've found to be one of the biggest struggles among Christians today is they believe that God's love for them is based upon and contingent upon their performance. They'll say, well, God loves me as long as I perfectly obey. But if I can't, He doesn't really love me then. God loves me when I do good. But if I mess up or do bad, well, there goes the love. God loves me when I don't mess up. God loves me as long as I have it all together. God loves me as long as I feel worthy of that love. But the problem is when they become aware of their own sin, and they start to struggle with sin again, when they aren't perfectly obedient, and they can't do all the right things, and they see that sin in their lives, they begin to doubt God's love and wonder again, how can He love me when my life looks like this? How is it possible for him to love someone like me? And these verses say, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We get a lot of words to describe those for whom Christ died in these verses. And they get progressively worse. That first one is weak. It has to do with ability. It referred to someone who was helpless and lacked the ability to do anything for himself. So a good picture of this, think back to John chapter 5. Jesus goes to the pool at Bethesda, and you remember there's a man there who's an invalid, right? He could do nothing for himself. He had been there for years and years and years, and he thought that the pool was magic. And so when Jesus came, he said, can you put me in that pool so that I can be healed? He couldn't do it for himself. This word was used to describe him. He was helpless, could do nothing for himself. That's what the Bible is describing those for whom Christ died here. And the descriptions get stronger because next we have the word ungodly. And that word means to be without reverence. The ungodly person lacks all reverence for God. Whatever God is, the ungodly person is the exact opposite. And it gets worse. Because verse 8 goes on to describe them as sinners. And in the Bible, the word sinners, it means to miss a mark. So if you're aiming at something, and you don't just miss, but you miss terribly, that's the biblical description of sin. You've missed a mark. You see, the mark that we're supposed to hit is God Himself. He is the standard of holiness and righteousness. And we are to match that standard, to live up to it. But none of us can do that, can we? And that's why the Bible says in Romans 3.23, we all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We have missed that mark and missed it dramatically. But then, to make matters even worse and to cap it all off, verse 10 goes on to describe these people as enemies. Those who are actively opposed to God and His ways. And so here's the description of the people for whom Christ died. They lack the ability to save themselves and live the righteous lives that God requires. They are irreverent in their beings. They consistently miss the mark of God's standard of holiness and they openly defy Him and oppose Him and His purposes and His ways. In other words, let's just call a spade a spade. These are some pretty unlovable people, right? I mean, who would love someone like this? That's what you're wondering, right? Who would even love someone like this, let alone die for them. Uh, Paul seems to have that thought in mind because in verse 7 he says, uh, listen, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one may dare even to die. He's saying this, listen, we we could understand a soldier on the battlefield dying in the place of and taking a bullet for his brother in arms, right? We can understand that. We can wrap our mind around that. We could understand a parent... Dying to save their children. I do it in a heartbeat. That makes sense to us. We can understand that. But the Bible is saying here, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for the Holy One of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, to die for people like this. A bunch of unable, irreverent, sinful enemies. And yet, That's exactly what he did. And amazingly, we've been saying they're those people, right? These are those people. Here's the twist We are those people. Notice how Paul changes. He says, But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are those people. We are the bad people who we just described as completely unlovable. And so the Bible is saying here that God loved us and proved His love for us when we were at our most unlovable. Now that's hard to wrap your mind around. You see, when you've got a a rough past like I do, and I do, it can make you feel pretty unlovable most of the time. I look at my past and my past is full of sin, full of pain, full of hurting people. And those things will stick with you even after salvation. They're like a shadow that's always attached to you that you can't seem to rid yourself of no matter how hard you try. And you will frequently ask yourself, how on earth could anyone, let alone God, love me? There are Uh, Many amazing things about my wife, more than I have time to tell up here. And uh, I think the thing that amazes me most about my wife, though, the the thing that I don't think I'm ever going to get used to or be able to understand or comprehend is how she can love me knowing all that she knows about me. I mean, she knows everything there is to know. She knows about my past. She knows about my darkness. She knows about my struggles. She knows about my sin. She knows about the hurt I've caused. And yet, in spite of all of that, somehow, she still loves me. Here's what's even more amazing than that. The Bible is saying here that God didn't just know about your darkest times. God didn't just know about your most sinful moments. God didn't just know about those times when you felt like the scum of the earth and the cheap of all sinners. The Bible is saying here, God loved you in those moments. I mean, that's hard to believe, is it not? And yet that's exactly what the Bible is saying here. When we were at our lowest point, God loved us even then. When we were completely unable to live righteous lives, God loved us Even then, when we were irreverent towards God, God loved us even then. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God loved us even then. When we were still in glad rebellion against God and living according to the ways of the world, God loved us even then. You see, we may be prone to question God's love and doubt God's love in the midst of suffering, and ongoing battles with sin. But church, here's what I want you to know this morning. If God loved us then, He loves us now. If God loved us at our worst moment, I can promise you, Christian, He loves you now. That love is unchanging. We learn a lot about God's love from the Bible. That's the primary way that we learn about God and his love. But let me just tell you from personal experience, second only to the Bible, being a father has taught me more and helped me understand God and his love for his children more than anything else. It's being a father. Because here's the thing my oldest son, Judah, he typically wants to make daddy happy. Typically, okay? He knows what makes me happy, what makes me upset. And he knows that one of the things that makes Daddy happy is when he eats all of his food. So as we're about to sit down for a meal, he'll look at me and go, I'm going to make you happy, Daddy. I'm going to eat my food all gone. I'm like, all right, let's see it. And then as we're eating, he will periodically stop and he'll look at me and he'll go, I'm making you happy, Daddy. I'm eating all my food. I'm like, that's right. Keep going. You got this. Let's go more and more. And then after he finishes his food, He will look at me almost every time and point to his plate and go, Daddy, look, I made you happy. I'm like, yeah, buddy, you did. That's great. Children can make their parents happy or sad, proud or disappointed. But let me just tell you right now, the one thing that doesn't change at all is a parent's love for their child. That is unchanging. You see, my oldest son, Judah, he knows how to get on my nerves. He knows how to work my nerves. I mean, every little nerve that I've got, that kid, he knows how to do it. He knows how to get me riled up. He knows how to get me worked up. But there is not a thing that that boy can do to change my love for him. I love that boy from the second I found out Anna was pregnant with him. I loved that boy before he ever even took his first breath. I love that boy before he ever even... Thought about doing anything good or bad. My love for my son has never been based on anything other than the fact that that is my child and I am his father. And let me just tell you this morning, church, that's exactly how it is with God and his children. God's love for you is not based on anything other than the fact that you are his child. Let this be an encouragement to you when you doubt God's love for you because you feel unworthy God has never loved you because you were worthy or deserving let this be an encouragement to you when you wonder how God could love you when you still fall short and you battle sin in your life listen to me God loved you even when you were dead in sin not just battling sin but dead in your sin God's love for us is not based upon or rooted in our obedience, our reverence, or our holiness. God's love for us is based entirely on the fact that before God created anything, before He laid the foundation of the world, before the stars hung in the sky, before the waters raged at sea, before the sun shone forth, He claimed us as His own. And He determined to save us from our sin and His wrath and damnation. This love is an unchanging love. It's an unfathomable love. And He proves that love, not with a fleeting feeling, but with something tangible. The death of Christ on the cross in our place. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. And so my my question, church, is how can we be certain of this love in every situation in life? How can we remain certain that God loves us when tragedy befalls us? When suffering comes our way? When we are prone to wander and when we fall back into sin? I think what Paul's trying to get out here, what he wants us to focus on is not our own feelings and our own experiences, not our circumstances, but this is what he wants us to know. When we want to be certain of God's love, we look to the cross of Christ. That is how you can be certain of God's love in every situation and circumstance in life. When we want to be certain of God's love, we look to the cross of Christ. When the French philosopher, René Descartes, wanted to acquire certain knowledge. He wanted to know something for sure, for certain. He sought about obtaining that perfect knowledge by doubting everything that could be doubted and denying everything that could be denied. And so he starts doubting everything and he finds that the one thing that he could not doubt was His own existence. And so He famously said, I think, therefore I am. Well, we too are prone to doubt many things in the Christian life, especially the love of God in various circumstances. When you're drowning in the sorrows of suffering, when the trials keep crashing over you like relentless waves upon the sea, when, when the darkness will not lift, when sin has lured you away yet again. You may be tempted to doubt God's goodness. You may be tempted to doubt God's kindness. You may be tempted even to doubt God's love for you. But there is one thing that you cannot deny. One thing that you cannot doubt, no matter the circumstance. And there is no doubt that Jesus died upon the cross. And if that is true, the Bible says here that his death upon the cross is the Father's proof of his love for us. If it is true that Jesus died on the cross, it is true that God loves all those who have turned to faith in Jesus. This is a proof that's undeniable, it's a fact that supersedes feelings. You can know that God loves you with an unchanging, unfailing love because Jesus died. On the cross for you. This is what the Bible says in first John four nine through ten. And this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the proof of God's love. But there will be some people here this morning who say, well, Pastor, listen, I don't feel worthy of this love. You aren't. And I'm just going to tell you that. (laughs) Neither am I. No one is. But fortunately for us, Jesus died for the unworthy. Others will say, "But, but I don't feel like I'm able to do enough for God. I don't feel like I can live that righteous life that He requires. You aren't. You can't do that. Fortunately for us, Christ died for the unable. There'll be others here this morning that say, but pastor, you don't know how bad my story is. You don't know how bad my past is. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sin in my life. You don't know the people that I have hurt and the lives that I have ruined. Pastor, you just don't know about my darkness. There's no way that God could love me. I've been irreverent and ungodly my whole life. Well, fortunately for us, Jesus died for the ungodly. There may be others here this morning who say, yes, but pastor, here's the thing. I trusted in Christ a long time ago, but I still sin. I'm not perfect. I mess up. I fall short. I continue to struggle with sin. I do the things I hate and the things I don't want to do and the things that I do want to do. I can't seem to do those things. There's no way that God can love me, right? There's no way that there's any love for me. And fortunately for us, friends, Christ died even for sinners. There may even be some here this morning who say, well, my story is worst of all. Because as I've been hearing you preach, Pastor, I realize that I am actually an enemy of God. That I've been living in rebellion against God that I have been actively opposed to God and His ways and His kingdom and His purposes. Surely, there's no love for me. Someone who has opposed Him for so long, and I want to tell you this morning, fortunately for you, Christ died even for His enemies. No matter where you find yourself this morning, whether unworthy, unable, irreverent, sinful, or rebellious, you will find that Jesus died even for you. This is one of the greatest benefits of being justified by faith in Christ. Not only are we loved by God, but we can be assured of that love for us. So church, let's not doubt this love any longer. The sufferings of this life may temporarily blind us to it. Sorrows may feel as though they are flooding us. Sorrows may feel like they're drowning us. But I want you to know for certain that God's love for you is even greater than the sorrows of suffering. No matter how bad it is for you this morning, I can promise you, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, God loves you even more than your situation hurts you. When trials and temptations prevent us from being able to feel as though we are loved by God, I want us to remember this morning that if God loved us at our absolute worst, when we were completely unlovable, I can assure you He loves us now Whenever we're tempted to doubt God's love because of our circumstances, our trials, our temptations, let us look to the cross of Christ as the proof and certainty that God loves us with an everlasting, unchanging, eternal love. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know. With all my heart, His wounds have paid my ransom. Let us look to the cross of Christ and be assured of the love of God. Amen? Let's pray.